0: The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.
1: Chapter 58 Donald R. Bull How do you feel about the death penalty? How long have you felt that way? Is it something you have discuss with friends and family? Tell us about it. Has the O.J. Simpson trial or the Susan Smith trial affected your views on the death penalty? How so? Susan Smith received life imprisonment and not death. What do you think about that result? Are there any situations in particular that call for the death penalty? What are they? Are there any murder cases in which the death penalty would be appropriate? What are they? Do you think that the death penalty is used too much or not enough? Why? Have you ever read or heard about an execution of someone that you felt was wrong? Please describe. How do you feel about lethal injection as a method of execution? Have you ever been asked or forced to make a life or death decision? Please describe. Was it a difficult thing for you? Why or why not? Do you have any religious or moral beliefs that could affect a decision regarding whether someone should live or die? In what way would they do so? How do you feel about serving on a jury that possibly would decide whether someone lives or dies? Is there anything we haven't asked that could cause you problems or concerns sitting on a jury, which possibly would be asked to decide whether someone lives or dies, If you found Donald R. Bull guilty, would you automatically vote to impose the death penalty, no matter what the facts are? Would you be inclined to hold the state to a higher burden of proof than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, because this is a murder case? Have you read or studied or heard anything about DNA evidence? And if so, where? and win. As a result of what you have read, studied, and heard about DNA evidence, have you formed any opinions about it? As you sit there, would you automatically reject DNA evidence if it were offered in this case? Or would you judge testimony about DNA evidence in the same manner as any other testimony offered in this case? Because this is a criminal case, the state has the burden of proving that the defendant committed the offense of first-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Is there anything about this being a murder case that would make it difficult for you to serve as a juror in this case? Would you want to impose a greater burden of proof upon the state than proof beyond a reasonable doubt because murder is such a serious charge? Would you avoid finding the defendant guilty of first-degree murder simply to avoid having to make a decision about the death penalty? Would you impose a higher burden of proof upon the state than the law required because this is a death penalty case? Do you have any beliefs of any kind, whether religious, moral, ethical, or philosophical, against the death penalty? And if so, what is the nature of that belief? And how long have you held this belief? Is the nature of your belief so strong that you could not vote to impose the death penalty, no matter what the evidence is? Do you think that your beliefs about the death penalty are such that they would substantially impair your ability to return a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder in this case? Are your beliefs about the death penalty such that they would prevent or substantially impair your ability to return a verdict that the defendant in this case should receive the death penalty have you given any thought to what type of case in which you believe the death penalty would be an appropriate sentence if the law in illinois permits the imposition of the death penalty for a certain type of murder and if that type of murder conflicted with your beliefs about when the death penalty is appropriate Would your beliefs prevent and substantially impair your ability to follow the law as I give it to you? As a good citizen, we all want to believe that we can follow the law and the instructions that the judge gives us. Do you realize that if you are selected as a juror in this case, you may actually be called upon to decide whether that person sitting there will receive the death penalty? Will you be able to vote for the death penalty if the law and the evidence warrant it? Will you be able to stand up in open court and actually say that the death penalty is your verdict? Do you hold any beliefs that any person who commits a murder should automatically receive the death penalty, regardless of the facts and the defendant's background? If you believe that the state has proven a defendant guilty of first-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt, and if you also believe that the state has proven that the necessary aggravating factor exists so as to qualify this case for the death penalty, is your belief about the death penalty such that you would vote to impose it no matter what the evidence and mitigation might be? Do you have any strong feelings by reason of your religious beliefs or conscience either for or against the death penalty? Do you have these strong feelings for or against the death penalty, no matter what the particular facts in this case might be? Would your strong feelings about the death penalty interfere with or affect your ability to determine the guilt or the innocence of the defendant regarding these charges? Would your strong feelings prevent or impair you from considering the death penalty in the appropriate case? If the defendant is found guilty of first-degree murder and the second hearing held, two separate and district questions will be asked of you, namely, does the death penalty apply to the facts in this case, and should the death penalty be applied to this particular defendant? Ladies and gentlemen, please consider each of these questions. The twelve jurors, not including the four alternatives, selected from a pool of about a hundred candidates were as follows. Roger Wilson, Mason C. Mosley, James A. Zimmerman, Betty Thompson, Nicholas J. Wine, Harold Weppner Ruth Atkinson, Linda Tripp, Kathy Knowles, Kathy Holes, Alyssa Varner, and Kathy McCormick. One day following jury selection, a former co-worker of Kathy McCormick's unexpectedly stopped by McCormick's home in Carthage. In fact, the visitor said that she had stopped by earlier that day, and seeing that Kathy was not home, she decided to stop back by. They sat about the kitchen table, Kathy made some coffee, and they chatted a while about this and that, a number of topics. And then the course of the conversation inevitably veered toward the trial, which had just moved to their county. Kathy told her friend that she, in fact, was chosen for jury duty. The visitor responded, Oh yeah, the murder trial. I hear he's done this before. And before Kathy knew it, the two were deep in talk on the matter, with Kathy talking about a dark chapter in her past, a time when her mother and herself had both been battered in relationships. And Kathy, despite having undergone therapy for years, and believing the trauma of these abusive relationships were in her past, was surprised to feel those emotions flowing strongly to the surface. She told her friend that if the defendant and the victim had been in a relationship, she should be very upset and rather affected given her own unhealed wounds. After the two finished their coffee and the friend left, as Kathy cleaned up the kitchen, she reflected on the conversation she had just had and suddenly came to the realization, against the judge's demand, she had, in fact, discussed the trial. She began to worry and decided to come clean, and she dialed up the judge. She told Judge Henderson what had happened and what the two had spoken of over coffee earlier that day. The judge asked Kathy if she had had any other conversations with anyone else regarding the trial, and Kathy responded that she had not. However, Kathy stated that subsequent to jury selection, she remembered that dark chapter from her past, and during jury selection. When Henderson asked the prospective jurors if anyone had been crime victims, Kathy had failed to say that she and both her mother had in fact been in battered relationships in the past. When Henderson further questioned Kathy about this matter, Kathy added that this prior incident did not result in any criminal charges. Kathy said that she indeed had undergone therapy and she thought the trauma was behind her and that she was surprised to discover that they were not. Kathy then stated again, if it came to light that Donald Arbol and Donna Tompkins had been in a relationship, she did not know if she could be impartial. During a later hearing on the matter, in which Donnie's defense team was present, however, Donnie had not been, though to no fault of his own. His defense requested a recess after Kathy's testimony, relieving Kathy from the stand. On their return, the defense informed the judge that they did not object to McCormick remaining on the jury. Henderson instructed Kathy not to consider those statements made by her friend that day or anything else outside the record. The judge noted that every juror brings his or her baggage to trial, which we take to mean personal history and experiences, and expressed to Kathy confidence that she would be fair and impartial despite her confession that she doubted her ability to do so and incidentally the jury subsequently chose Kathy as their foreperson Donald R. Bull. Is it a coincidence that America's past is littered with infamous three named killers? Jared Lee Laudner, Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, John Wilkes Booth, Gary Leon Ridgway, John Wayne Gacy, Paul John Knowles, Mark David Chapman. In fact, Nine of the top 20 serial killers in the United States, ranked by body count, are known by three names. Is there a reason so many murderers use their middle names? It indeed does seem to be a coincidence. But our coincidence is real. The three most famous political assassins in US history use three names. John Hinckley Jr. delivered a non-fatal wound to Ronald Reagan in 1981. It's often assumed that three names are used to identify an infamous killer, so as to avoid cases of mistaken identity, so that other guys named Lee Oswald won't have their reputations besmirched. But many of the most famous three-named assassins identified themselves as such before they committed their crimes. It is true, however, that police often announce a suspect's full name to avoid cases of mistaken identity, and reporters tend to follow their example, such as Mark David Chapman. The press didn't have any public statements about Chapman before his arrest, so they may have defaulted to the three names to avoid confusion with other Mark Chapmans. The decision was easier with Lautner. He referred to himself with three names on social media. However, there may be an abundance of three-name killers for other reasons. Would-be assassins might embellish their own names to sound more grandiose. After all, middle names were a point of pride when they first became popular in the United States in the 19th century. Or it could be a kind of feedback loop modern villains want to emulate their role models. As mentioned, America's past is littered with infamous three-name killers, like mass murderer Wade Michael Page. But might there be another possibility? Might police use three names to make a suspect, a defendant, more associated in the public mind with those of notorious killers engraved into our collective consciousness? After all, Donald R. Ball went by Donnie, Donnie Ball. And sometimes, simply, D-O-N-N-I. Anything is possible. And Donald R. Bull, in fact, never went by Junior. That was a concoction of the media, in particular, the Peoria Journal star. Had Junior added that edge, had D-O-N-N-I not cut it, did it not quite hit the mark for psycho killer? Is there a tendency or impulse, one that may not even be conscious, to invoke the boogeyman. Donald R. Bull, you are evil. You're a killer. Donald R. Bull, you are guilty as charged. With this underpinning, this preconception deeply etched into the public's mind by the press, that Donnie was a killer before the trial had even begun. There was little doubt that the defense saw the need for damage control. This was most likely to be a death penalty case, and given Donnie was found guilty come the penalty phase, they would desperately need a psychologist to testify in Donnie's behalf, to explain to the judge and jury that Donnie was not a psycho killer, but a victim who had been victimized by others, childhood abuse which had snowballed into an inner turmoil, which inevitably resulted in a loss of control and acting out of rage, of violence, which ended him up here, despite his own true nature. Shy, quiet, respectful. An unhealed victim of possible unfortunate childhood circumstances, of which Donnie had no means to control nor escape. And thus, Donald R. Bull. Donnie. Not an unhinged, cold-hearted killer, but simply a deeply wounded man, which resulted from what exactly? To quote Ted Bundy, you go to the mouth of any great river and pull out a handful of water that's flowing from it and say, where did it come from? To trace it back, and this is what we're dealing with here. We're talking about microscopic events as it were, and undistinguishable, undetectable events, the melting of a single snowflake, the advent of spring, and the combination of other factors perhaps, the ultimate result that we appreciate which is the river itself we're now talking about the development of well behavior murder okay well what caused what kinds of mental functions aberrations lay at the base of it and how did they and where were they given birth where did they result what were they the result of and it's difficult to trace it back and say this is what happened Defense attorney Alyssa McMillan filed a motion on March 13, 1996, for the appointment of a psychologist, stating that the defense has the affirmative duty to establish evidence in mitigation to be used at a death penalty sentencing hearing before the jury should this matter proceed to trial and the defendant be found guilty of the offense. That the defendant is indigent and effective counsel must explore the client's background and all avenues of mitigation. Ms. McMillan stated that she had already uncovered information about the defendant's background, which necessitated further psychological evaluation. She asked that the court make the funds available for a neuropsychologist evaluation to be performed by Dr. Michael Gelbart, whom, ladies and gentlemen, you've already heard speak on the matter of traumatic brain injury in an earlier episode. She added that Dr. Gilbert's evaluation was necessary to assist the defense. Inadequately preparing for the mitigation phase of the capital sentencing hearing, seeing the state might prevail. Dr. Jobor estimated that if he should receive immediate access to the defendant at Pontiac Correctional Center, he could complete said evaluation within four weeks, and the cost of said evaluation, including testing, would be $3,250. March 14, Peoria Journal Star. Choking evidence may be disallowed. Judge to determine whether defendant's criminal history will be admissible in trial. Carthage. Prosecutors may not know until several days into their case when they can present evidence to show a Canton man accused of strangling and burning a woman and her daughter has a history of choking people the admissibility of Donald Bull Jr.'s criminal history as evidence at his upcoming double murder trial was the focus of the pre-trial conference on Wednesday. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner expects the trial to last about three weeks. He said he has not yet decided if he will seek the death penalty if Bull, 33, is convicted. 2.5 hour conference focused mainly on whether the prosecution would be allowed to present testimony from people allegedly choked by Bull in earlier cases. Melissa McMillan argued that the state was trying to show choking as a method of operation for Bull. But that isn't feasible in this case because the state cannot even determine the cause of death of the Tompkins. McMillan pointed out several times that investigators' reports show the cause of death of Don and Justine Tompkins as undetermined. Therefore, because it could not prove how they died, there was no relevance in whether or not Bull choked people but prosecuting attorney Edward Parkinson said that there would be testimony during the trial to show the cause of death, making the choking link vital. Danner said he expects to call 80 to 90 witnesses in the trial. On March 18th, the state filed a statement of facts stating that the state expects to call the following people as prosecution witnesses. Bonnie Ford, Marty Brown, Jim Campbell, Robert Derenzi, Ron Pavley Terry Harrison Steve Hines Maury Hines Dr. G.L. Derry Jonathan Schaefer Carrie Schaefer Linda Huggins Lucinda Knauss Charles Burroughs Carlene Lovell, Anthony Fillingham Larry Smith John Pelikudas, Jim Franciskevich Robert Berry David Breeze Mike McClellan John Tompkins Craig Shaw Raymond Ketto John Stinko, Phil Saleh Greg Manning Randy Kissinger Kevin Peterman Richard Sedgwick Oliver Stanko Vera Seville, Lynn Peterman Brad Davis Dr. John Murphy Dr. William Roschetti Dr. Grant Johnson Sheila Sisk Hazel Brown David Haynes Max Scott Tina Crawford Iona Price Sherry Ald, Rochelle Hillmeyer Misty Pratt Eric Pig David Nell Bryle Clear Terry Haynes Rod Franciscovich Scott Roop, Rose Montoya Ted Anderson, Kim Kedzer, Larry Nickel, Marty Brown, David Ayers, Joanne Wright, Harold Crozer, Michael Price, Chris Chester, Jacqueline Day, Peter Harvey, Joanne Folk, Jennifer McMillan, Ann Smiley, Susan Amicucci, William Ricketts, Richard Johnson, Dr. Rod McGuire, Kay Danner, Kurt Pierce, Dan Daly, Roger Lindsay, Mark Peterson, Donna Roop, Connie Wheeler, Jill Gray, Tanya Davis, Valerie Hilton Ginny Hahn David Metzger Dean Putman Don Taylor Misty Pratt Linda Huggins Maury Hines Jeff Ashley Brad Davis Amelia Scott John Button Timothy Owens Steve Nelson Sherry Gersnich, Marilyn Riley Bonnie Tompkins George Tompkins Terry Harrison Sarah Haynes Cheryl Buben Barbara Joan Westover Heidi Hughes Catherine Tabor Kenneth Long Scott Hikes Jennifer McMillan, Rick Lilly, Russell Stuffelbeam, Jeffrey Bennett, Larry Bowler, Sue Ann Harris, Drake Smith, Willard Adams, Walter Edwards, Leela Bull, Connie Chandler, Bruce Nell, Richard Heron, John Robbins, Donald Long, Joseph Ferguson, Jennifer Pratt, Mary Munson, Donald Crone, Chad Bohannon, Anthony Franciscovich, James Schlanigan, Jimmy Joseph, Christy Votapel, Pauline Newcomb, Clark Hogan, Harold Fischer, Steve Malgram Linda Rose Jerry Spangler Caroline App Christina Werland, Connie Green Julie Erton Priscilla Culp Grant Johnson Chris Jacobson Raymond Ketto Terrence McCain Ginny Hahn Peter Heavy, Don Tankersley Ted Anderson Terry Kramer Robert Fishburn, Kent McDowell James Franciscovich David Breeze Howard Dye James K. Campbell Craig Shaw Chief Robert Durant. March 23, 1996, Peoria Journal-Star. Bull's past kept out of murder trial. Defense claims choking, without further evidence, is not a pattern. Carthage, a judge on Friday, ruled that prosecutors cannot present evidence that murder defendant Donald Bull Jr. has a history of choking women when he becomes sexually frustrated. That means prosecutors will only be allowed to present evidence relating to the January 1993 deaths of Donna and Justine Tompkins, and cannot refer to other cases in an attempt to show the bull frequently resorted to choking. Opening arguments in the case are to begin at 9.30 a.m. Monday. Attorneys worked for days this week to pick 12 jurors and four alternatives in Hancock County, where the trial was moved because of pretrial publicity. Attorneys from both sides said that they were not surprised by the ruling. It was absolutely the correct move, said defense attorney Alyssa McMillan. We should only be trying this case. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said the decision was only a slight setback that would not hamper prosecution, but said that he had hoped the decision would swing his way. In an attempt to show similarities between past attacks and the Tompkins' deaths, Danner and fellow prosecutor Edward Parkinson questioned two past victims of Bulls and the pathologist who conducted autopsies on the Tompkins. Donna Roop said Bull choked her twice in one night after she had slapped him in the face during an argument in February 1983 while she was his sister-in-law. Valerie Hinton testified to another choking attack in March of 1993. She said that she and Bull went to several bars together one night before she offered to give him a ride home. However, instead of directing her to his house, he guided her to a park where he proposed sex. When she refused, he choked her. Bull is currently serving an eight-year prison sentence for his attack on Hinton and was previously convicted and jailed for his attack on Roop. Ladies and gentlemen, if I might interject for accuracy's sake, the judge may have barred Donnie's past from the trial, but the media had made sure to get it out there before the eyes of the public regardless. One can look at the consequences of four-person Kathy McCormick and see the damage already done regarding the publicity of Donnie's past. However, the media had not only done its utmost to put these ideas out there, but it also had, in fact, yet to actually state those ideas accurately. Yes, it is a fact that Donnie was currently serving an eight-year prison sentence for assaulting Hinton. However, the defendant and the victim's accounts differed wildly, to such an extent that the jury did not find Donnie guilty of a sexual assault charge due to a lack of evidence that the pair ever actually ended up at the park that night. According to Donnie, the two engaged in a brief physical confrontation in a bar parking lot. Not to mention that Valerie had not just offered Donnie a ride home, but that the two instead left the bar with a six pack of beer to go for a ride to get high on some marijuana, which according to Donnie, turned out to be crack cocaine. This is not to say that Donnie's version of events was valid or that Hinton's was false. It is simply to state the fact that the jury failed to determine what had actually happened that night, other than Donnie had, in fact, choked her or according to Donnie, lifted her by the neck and threw her to the ground after Valerie attacked him in the bar parking lot. The point is that regardless of whether this event took place in the park or in the bar parking lot, though the prosecution was able to prove that Valerie had sustained these injuries after an argument between the two, the official state record was never able to prove that these events took place in the park or that a sexual assault ever occurred. Thus, Donnie was, in fact, not sentenced to those eight years for choking Hinton as a direct result of sexual frustration in the park, but that he had been sentenced for assaulting her in the absence of any proof of suggesting sex, forcing sex, etc., and that assault alone, regardless of where it may have happened and why, was the only fact to be determined. Essentially, both stories were forsaken, for the only physical proof provided to the jury was that Hinton had indeed sustained injuries at the hands of Bull that night after leaving the second of two bars the two had visited that night. Might the Peoria Journal-Star forsake in fact for a sensational account of Donnie's past to really exacerbate what it was precisely that the judge was depriving of the prosecution, the state, from being able to use as a tool to essentially put this serial assaulter who had seemingly graduated to murder away? But as mentioned, the deed remarkably already accomplished before a jury of public perception had been deemed of which was very unlikely to be undone that of which had already infiltrated the jury box to such an extent, I cannot help but believe Judge Henderson felt he had little choice but to counter this potential for prejudice by accepting the defense's motion to bar Donnie's past history, fact, and fantastical, and fiction out of the trial. Not to mention the fact that Donna and Justine's initial coroner's report did in fact state cause of death undetermined. Therefore, it is unprovable the consequence of a pattern of either Donnie's past actions or accusations against Donnie. Parkinson argued that in both cases, Bull resorted to choking women when he could not get sex from them. Again, unsubstantiated by Donnie's 1993 guilty verdict, a slight of fact and state narrative, in which I have no idea how it made its way with little to no objection in Donnie's current pre-trial hearing. John Murphy, a pathologist who performed autopsies on the Tompkins said that although he could not pinpoint a cause of death, the woman was too badly burned. He said the most likely cause of death was due to some form of asphyxiation, either by strangulation or smothering. Again, ladies and gentlemen, speculation presented as certainty. He concluded the Tompkins were dead before the fire started, because neither had traces of soot in their tracheas, and that both had low levels of a chemical in the bloodstream that is present in high levels among fire victims. That, ladies and gentlemen, would be carbon monoxide, by the way. McMillan argued that choking had not been established in the Tompkins' deaths, and she said choking, without further evidence, should not be considered a pattern of operation. Choking in and of itself is not more than a gunshot wound, she argued. You need something like a rope, a wire, or a vice that leaves similar marks each time. There is absolutely no link, no fingerprint to tie them together. Parkinson disagreed. Choking doesn't appear to be a common, everyday thing when a man wants sex, he said. I think the incidents are similar enough and unique enough to be a bit of an earmarker. The other women went unconscious. They just didn't happen to die. March 12th. The defense files a motion to exclude prejudicial photographs claiming that there are numerous photographs of the deceased individuals, taken both by the police and by the pathologist for the autopsies performed on Donna and Justine. The defense objects to the use of the photos because they are of limited probative value. Their relevancy was clearly outweighed by the potential inflammatory nature of the grotesque color photographs, which may cause the jury to decide on factors other than the issues in dispute. Not only images from the scene of the crime, but chiefly photographs, Of the coroner performing the autopsy the defense also filed a motion to declare the illinois death penalty unconstitutional stating that the statute is not only vague but that the unbridled discretion to choose after conviction whether a death sentencing hearing will be held violates the u.s constitution prohibiting cruel and unusual behavior also that the statute failed to inform the jury of their power to afford the defendant mercy also protested was that the statute states, if the murdered individual was under 12 years of age and the death resulted from exceptionally brutal or heinous behavior indicative of wanton cruelty. This wording was so vague that it not only violated Donnie's constitutional rights, but that an ordinary person could honestly believe that every unjustified intentional taking of a human life was exceptionally brutal, heinous behavior indicative of wanton cruelty. Also, that such limited language provided no principled way to distinguish Donnie's case from any of the many cases in which the death penalty had not been imposed. These motions had been filed following a motion to preclude the state from death qualifying a potential juror, stating that the process of death qualification deprives the defendant of a fair and impartial trial because the produces is a body of conviction-prone jurors that are more likely to find a defendant guilty than a jury that has not been death qualified and it prejudicially limits a fair cross-section of the community to decide the separate questions of guilt and the appropriateness of the death penalty. That is to say, ladies and gentlemen, that the jury of Donnie's peers will be limited to those who are pro-death penalty. The defense was referring to the questions presented to potential jurors concerning their beliefs on the death penalty, which I had read to you at the beginning of the episode. More importantly, the motion states that to prove Donnie Bowles eligible for the death sentence it must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant actually caused the deaths of Donna and Justine. March 11th, a motion regarding the state's speculation as to the cause of death. Seeing that Donnie was accused and charged with 10 indictments, the defense claimed that discovery provided to the defendant by the state revealed the following, that the death certificate of Donna Tompkins lists the cause of death as undetermined that the death certificate of Justine Tompkins lists the cause of death as undetermined, that the coroner's jury that met on April 16, 1993 could not determine the cause of death for either Justine or Donna Tompkins, that the state's pathologist who performed the autopsy on both Donna and Justine could not determine cause of death, summarizing that the evidence was clear and convincing that the cause of death was undetermined for both Donna and Justine Tompkins, and to permit the state To state a cause of death other than undetermined will be misleading, speculative, inaccurate, and untrue. Of course, as expected, the state filed motions in response, objecting and declaring the death penalty as, well, perfectly constitutional. And on March 19th, 1996, the Pura Journal Star headline read, Death Penalty Will Be Sought in Murder Trial, Carthage. Danner announced Monday that he intends to seek the death penalty if Bull is convicted of first-degree murder. Prosecutors said he waited until this week to announce his intent to seek the ultimate punishment in the case because he wanted to be sure of what evidence would be admissible at trial. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, no ambitious state's attorney wants to take the chance of losing a death penalty case, as it would be, understandably, quite possibly, a massive blow for their career advancement. However, with endowed confidence, I've got enough, said Danner. I'm Cory Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
0: Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Genra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, Narrative of a Double Homicide.